SNMA Presents The Lounge is proud to be sponsored by Black Men in White Coats, an organization that seeks to increase the number of Black men in the field of medicine by exposure, inspiration, and mentoring. So, young brothers, we're talking to you. If you're on the journey to medicine or even considering it, visit blackmeninwhitecoats.org to get tips, tricks, and mentors. Now let's start the show. What's good, everybody? Welcome to SNMA Presents the Lounge. Whether you're in the student lounge, doctor's lounge, or lounging around at home, get ready to join SNMA for meaningful conversations on topics affecting minorities in medicine and groups that often sit at the margins of healthcare. SNMA, aka the Student National Medical Association, is the largest nonprofit organization for minority students in medicine. Sheesh, man, we turning 57 in a few months, almost at 60, and we continue building, holding it down since 1964. We needed a way to talk to our people faster and more engaging than email. So SNMA Presents the Lounge was born. All right, all right. Welcome to SNMA Presents the Lounge. I'm student Dr. Aldwin. I'm from the Bronx, New York. Boogie down, you already know. New York all day, you know, we the best city, best borough. I'm from Pecom, Georgia. And my hot take, unpopular opinion, honestly, since I'm from New York, I got to say Takashi 69 is the hottest rapper right now. I don't care if he a rat. Like, he, he the lavas. So y- y'all can't tell me nothing. Hate me, love me. But that's the energy I'm feeling. And he's putting on for the city. So I'm rocking with him from now. What's going on, everyone? I'm Isabella Intabu. I am from Jersey, so you know I'm not too far from Aldwin. Okay, we're neighbors, we're right there. Um, I'm an incoming M0 at the University of Pennsylvania, recent graduate from Howard University. Um, so any pre-meds out there, if you need any help regarding anything, you can definitely ask me any questions. Um, my hot take, I would have to say, actually, no, this is more of an unpopular opinion, is that milk goes before the cereal and that's on period and that, i'm gonna just leave it at that what's up everybody this is student dr erica dingle hailing from queens new york i currently attend saint matthews university school of medicine on the beautiful island of grand cayman and i am a second semester student so my unpopular opinions i think bubbly water is delicious i love me a seltzer unflavored um, let's mm. see what else I could do without ribs. Yeah, I know it's cool. <laughs> and I'm also, also a die hard B fan. Stand up beehive. Rihanna all day. Nah. I'm rocking with Bayesian life. Shout out to Riri. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. No worries. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, a Rihanna fan. I love Rihanna. I can do that. I could do Rihanna. We rocking with her. Oh my God. All right. Are y'all ready? Because it's time to run the list. For our preclinical students, running the patient list on the wards allows the team to address pressing matters of the day. In this segment of the show, we'll be discussing some recent events in medicine affecting our communities and the populations we serve. You may or may not know, but we just came off our first virtual 
AMAC's virtual AMAC conference, the annual medical education conference in 56 years. In fact, we partnered with AMSA, the American Medical Student Association, whose immediate past president is also a member of SNMA. He'll be joining us later in this episode. So did y'all happen to attend this conference? I certainly did. Uh, uh, and I had a great time just having the opportunity to get, connect with residencies during the virtual uh, AMEC this year. I thought it was great. Also, they had a virtual speed dating event, uh, as you guys may be aware of, right? Yeah, I mean, I for like a guy, that. you know, especially AMEC can be lit, so oh. I, I enjoyed yeah, you love to see it. Well, you got it. next year, though. You, you got next year, though. That's why we're going to be in Orlando next year for 2021. But then there was a whole host of great lectures. Um, they had a lecture on how can, um, how cannabis can um, physically affect people and uh, manifest in terms of helping people with certain diseases and learning about the history of cannabis use in medicine. And it was just a, a plethora of things that just intrigued me. And that's why I love AMEC, right? I love going every year. I've been to Philly, Atlanta. I've gone to AMEC four or five times. And so the audience I employ, I come through to AMEC next year, show love. It's a way for you to connect, not just with other medical students, pre-med students. You can connect with residents, attendings. I've met people that I've personally um, interviewed yeah, it was dope. It was, I attended a few sessions because I'm a member of both. And it was just cool to see organizations that are so prominently known in our community, the Black community, and other communities as well, just come together with the common goal of networking, trying to trying to just get to know people, to better ourselves and in in enhance ourselves in the medical field. So yeah. I appreciate it. I can't wait to attend. COVID go away. So we can attend. I don't know. I'm gonna be in Orlando. <laughs> no one's gonna stop me from that Orlando trip. Period. Like I need to be in that sun. I need to be. I need I to be out there where all the other black people are. That's that's just where I'm at. <laughs> black excellence, Melanin excellence. Yeah, we out here. We turning up. We changing the narrative, the story, and wow. dynamic behind medicine. So shout out to. And speak, speaking of no seriously, seriously. Um, Health and policy specifically, Dr. Cameron Webb, who was a former president from 2010 to 2011 of SNMA, won the Virginia House primary. And I think it's beautiful of uh, the fact that we're finding our way into the political arena. Um, shout out to Dr. Cameron Webb for being opportunistic and taking advantage of the times to really be a leader and advocate for our community, specifically in Virginia. If he is elected, he'll be the first African-American physician to be in Congress. And so that in itself is a huge accomplishment. And then nonetheless to say he was former president, so he's putting SNMA on and kind of in a way inspiring the next generation, a wave of people to say, hey, you could be a physician, but you could also be a politician. You could be an entrepreneur. You could do other things. You don't have to necessarily stick to just medicine, but you can find various ways to be able to connect with your community and make change that is everlasting. So I do look forward to seeing um, what happens in Virginia. Dr. Cameron Webb, we support you, love you, and we look forward to seeing you rise to the top. I also think it's, it's so like great that he won the primary because Virginia is typically known to be a red state. And so having that democratic presence is definitely going to shake the table for the residents. You know, he's going to come in with them fresh ideas and everything. And also, you know, of course I did a little bit of research because, you know, I don't like to talk on anything without doing my research. So I know that his campaign platform was centered on affordable health care, which is something that's definitely going to affect black and brown communities who are either uninsured, 
due to financial means or job security or any of the sort. So I really just think that his win is just like, it's just really going to change the, the whole dynamic. Absolutely. I think it's so dope. So again, congratulations to you, Dr. Webb. We're going to continue now on the wins and losses, right? So the LGBTQIA community coming off of Pride Month actually um, had a win and a loss. And we'll just start getting into that. Isabella, did you want to touch on it first? Yeah. So the LGBTQ, I mean, they've just been getting blow and then a clap and then a blow and then a clap. I don't really get it. But in terms of the LGBT um, employment issues, so they had a recent um, proposal that was put into Congress, Bostick versus Clayton County, Georgia. And essentially, the Supreme Court ruled that um, LGBT employment, like you cannot be discriminated based on being uh, either gay or lesbian, bisexual, transgender due to Title IX, which states that someone cannot be hired or fired on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, or religion. And although it doesn't explicitly state homosexuality as a factor, you still have to judge a person's sex when you're also judging their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So it's like the two concepts are very much linked. And so, of course, they had to rule in favor for um, no discrimination um, when it comes to employment for LGBT members. Um, and also, according to the New York Times, before Monday's decision, it was actually legal in more than half of the states to fire workers for being gay, bisexual, right. transgender. What I just think is crazy because it's like it's 2020, you know, and it's like more than half of the states are still on that wave. I didn't really get it, but you know, that's right. Just like, like you said, Isabella, like it's just, we're in 2020. Like how, how, how in the world has it taken it so long for the opinion or the thought process to be like, it's not about person's sexual orientation. It's more so about their character and how they impact people and what they do. You know what I mean? And so it's distasteful to see that it's taken this exactly. long for this, uh, legislative action to, um, start off and take initiative amongst so many states. I mean, you talk about so many states that weren't even supportive of this initially and now they are. Like so it's to 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 it beckons the thought of yeah. what are we doing in America? We have to see people for face value, but we also have to see people for the fact that it's not about sexual orientation, religious ideals, it's not about where the person is from, their backgrounds. It's about how they make people feel, what they do, and how they can connect to the community on a grander scale. And I think barring this level of discrimination will be incredible for the LGBTQIA uh, community. And I'm very appreciative and supportive of this going into uh, effect for this community that's oftentimes undermined and is neglected. And while we had our great win for the LGBT community regarding the LGBT employment initiative, we still had a little loss. We had a lot. Actually, it's not a little loss. It was a, it was a big loss. And it was for transgender health rights. Um, basically, the Department of Health and Human Services is no longer recognizing gender identity as an avenue for sex discrimination in healthcare. So basically, you're eliminating protections for all transgender populations. And this is definitely a far cry from the Obamacare era, where Obama's administration recognized sex discrimination to include discrimination on the basis of gender identity. So I think it's crazy. I absolutely think it is crazy. So you mean to tell me because of what I identify as, mm -hmm. I no longer have access to healthcare. It's I mean, think about the amount of people that come into our hospitals and our doctor's offices every day. So we, we take this oath 
do no harm. So where exactly does this fall for physicians? Like where are the physicians that actually have a problem with this? Like, can y'all stand up and do something for those of us that would love to fight if we could, but we're now trying to get to where you are. Somebody needs to take a stand. What are these institutions doing to help people out? I think that when we say that we want to become doctors and that we want to, you know, dedicate our lives to helping Mm -hmm. people, it doesn't just end when you clock mm-hmm. in, clock out. You know, the work continues exactly. even after you leave. Mm-hmm. I mean, you it's about like you make a great I point. I certainly you. agree with you because as physicians, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, we are not just physicians. And our patients are going to come in a variety of forms of different religions, different backgrounds, different skin tones, different understandings and perceptions of the world. And so we got to take it yep. a step beyond, right? It's not just about coming into the office, seeing your patients and then diagnosing them, treating them. It's also going above and beyond and saying, hey, let me go to Capitol Hill and let's talk about this to Congress people. Let's talk about this to the Senate. Let's talk about LGBTQI issues because those are the patients that I see or may see in my in my patient population in the future. Let's talk about the black community. Let's talk about people that are undermined and underserved in the community. And it, le- it lends to the fact that that's, this is what SNMA is about. For all our future leaders that are listening, this is what we got to do. It's not just about sitting down and reading your books. You got to read the books, of course. That's get them A's if you can. Unlike me, I ain't get no A's in med school except for my first term. But the reality is you got to go above <laughs> and beyond your call of action because that is what is asked of you. We are all destined for greatness. And in order for us to reach that greatness, we have to understand the equality, the love, the compassion, the understanding and perceptions of the world. And for us to do that, we got to make sure that we represent our patients to the best ability that we can. Well said. Represent patients the best way we can. All patients. Exactly. I'm right there with like y'all that. too. Amen. I love my co-host. Love y'all. Amen. <laughs> love you too. <laughs> All right, y'all. So unfortunately, keeping with more losses, right? We're on the loss string right now. So the Supreme Court, you know, they are honestly popping right now. And I don't know if they're popping in a good way or a bad way. But let's discuss this Trump's idea to do away with DACA and how it reached the Supreme Court. All right. Now, I'm going to let y'all speak and then I'll save my opinion for last. Yeah, I'm going to come in with the with, just with the facts in case, you know, people are not aware of DACA because, you know, sometimes we like to assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. But some people really don't be, you know, reading the news. Some people mm-hmm. don't even know the policies that are affecting people and how people are even surviving in this country. And so I'm going to just give a little background to our listeners. Um, DACA is also, which is um, short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is an Obama-era policy that protects hundreds of thousands of immigrants who Mm -hmm. come to the U.S. very young from being deported, right? So essentially, there are many children who have grown up to be Americans in every sense of the word, like you, like me, like, you know, everybody, even if they were born somewhere else and they never became naturalized citizens. So they constantly kind of, you know, face that fear of, you know, one day, Am I going to be sent back to this country that I have no idea about because I came to this country super young um, until now DACA came along. And that was almost like this like beacon of light for a lot of people who basically grew up in this country, but, you know, they don't have their actual papers to really be, I guess, quote unquote, legal, as maybe Trump would say. I don't really like using the term legal because I feel like everybody, in a sense, is legal just for existing. Um 
But essentially, DACA is that document that allows them to have those same rights as U.S. citizens, which includes mm-hmm. gaining access to in-state tuition to colleges, receiving social security numbers, um, being able to work legally for higher wages. Like, these are all very necessary things that DACA has provided them. And so, you know, these benefits also help them feel just less exclusion in general when it comes to job security, financial opportunity, and even just physical and emotional freedom. And so it's just, I feel like it's a very loaded document and for Trump to be trying to attack that, mm-hmm. he doesn't realize how many lives he's going to affect, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what's that's going to really do for this country because so many people in this country are under DACA and they are very much essential citizens of society, just like you and me. So I don't know. I'm done. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. In regards to this, you go know, ahead, it's, it's just amazing <laughs> no. when, when we talk to the statistics and the facts, like you mentioned, there are approximately 800,000 undocumented immigrants that have, obtained a DACA status, which is, is in itself um, amazing. And studies often show that uh, people mm-hmm. that are uh, have DACA status are more likely to complete, complete their high school degree, get their high school diploma, get college degrees, and get master's degrees. And so mm-hmm. in a way, we're hurting our own country where we have so many successful individuals that are living that are contributing to our society. And because of DACA, they've been enabled in so many ways to allow us to be so prosperous. And so um, the fact of the matter that our political arena is trying to repeal that and work against that is very, um, uh, it's just unfortunate. Yeah, no, obviously. Thankful, all all good points. Um, Thankfully, uh, the administration failed to provide, quote unquote, adequate reasoning to justify ending the DACA program. But my question is, So when I think of some classmates that I have that may fall under DACA who are studying to become doctors, that's a four-year process in itself. Then to get to residency, um, how will this affect them? Like, what can our institutions do from, I don't know, a a board level or, you know, an admin level to ensure that their students are actually covered and can actually fulfill their educational desires. I mean, it's so loaded. Mm-hmm. So many people, like you mentioned, affected. So um, I'm hoping that there comes some resolve at some point and that people who want to study here, specifically those non-European immigrants, because that's, let's face it, that's who's covered under DACA, exactly. will have the opportunities to study and to pursue their dreams of mm-hmm. becoming healthcare providers. I think that it's up to schools who know that they have DACA um, recipients to have certain protections for them um, within legal reason, of course, something that goes along with the bill that we currently have, um, you know, seated in Congress for them. Um, how, as long as that kind of goes along with it and, you know, the school isn't breaking any rules, I do think they should have some internal protections for DACA students as well as maybe a board or like, you know, an, uh, a group or, you know, whatever organization they want to create that can really help put focus to those kinds of individuals so they can feel a little bit more safer, not like, oh, tomorrow they're going to go back to whatever country they were. And all of the time they've invested into their education and their future is just like, you know, gone in a matter of days. So that's my answer to your question, but we don't really know what's going to happen, you know? So it's unfortunate. Again, right. Again, something so loaded and hopefully we'll see some, Mm -hmm retribution of some sort in the future definitely so you guys you know we're we are amidst Mm -hmm. two types of pandemics right now y'all 
we got the COVID crisis going on. Ooh, and then we have, right, the Rona. And then we have our own. <laughs> <laughs> then we have our own personal pandemic going on. And that's our plight with police brutality. That's racial been revolution. For, cent- for centuries. And it's yes. getting televised this time. Okay. The revolution is televised. <laughs> so. I mean, there's so much to be said. So I want to get the conversation started on just the police brutality. Like, let, let's let put it out there. What? How do we feel? What's going on? What do you feel to say regarding the protests so, and everything? In regards to the police brutality, it is certainly angering for me, um, being a Black male and being one of the, the targeted individuals when we talk about specific populations that are affected by police brutality, it's it's very uh, just eye-opening because these things have happened for as long as we can remember, right? But now we have the fact that technology is available, so people are able to record. Really? Like, think about it. We go back 50, 60 years, 50 or 60 years ago. You talk to Emmett Till, for instance, who was, you know, purportedly... Said that he uh, he was. They were told that he was whistling at a white woman, and then gets beat up to his death. You know, mm-hmm. and we don't know the facts behind that. We didn't have nobody to have video camera or see what had happened in that in that instance. But now we there's such a plethora of access to information, and we have the ability to have the realization like, hey, these are things that are happening in our community, and now we got to face it and tackle it head on. And it's it's crazy to think, like, even for me, as being a medical student, there's a facade. I'll be driving, like, I remember a couple of days ago, I was I got two white coats in the back of my car, man. Like, because when I drive by cops, I want them to know I'm not gangbanging or doing none of that extra stuff. <laughs> so it's just this, you know, this yep. kind of warfare mm-hmm. in your mind. Like, how do I protect myself? And how... Do I find myself in positions where I can help protect other people? And it's just um, so saddening that we that's the state of affairs where you feel fearful. I, I drive by a cop car and I start getting tachycardic. I start sweating, like literally. And I don't think that's right. The cops are, they were hired to work for us, yeah. right? They, we weren't, we, you know what I mean? Like we weren't, we, we, we don't work for the cops. Y'all work for us. It's yeah. our taxes that pay for y'all jobs. And so if you're not doing y'all jobs appropriately, especially in the communities of color that are disproportionately affected, then you guys, we need to rework and retool the way that we're perceiving of cops and the way that we're teaching them in law enforcement, the way that they understand our communities. And oftentimes that's, it it is, it's just so painful because I, I can tell you so many times living in the South Bronx in the city, there was not one time and there's not one time to this day that I walk by a cop and I'm like, yo, that's my man. Yo, I rock with you. I love you. No, nah, it's the exact opposite. Like, I feel uncomfortable, like, way uncomfortable. So, the you know, and we talk about Rashard Brooks yeah. and everybody that's, you know, um, unfortunately lost their lives to police brutality. But we got to also acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of work to be done, but it's beautiful to see our communities rising up together, connecting, protesting, being out here, putting in the work. I love it. Black communities we got black businesses opening up, people going out there showing love. You know what I mean? So um, I would love to hear what your, you guys' thoughts are on this too as well. So. 
No, because I just think, no, literally, Alvin, I really appreciate your take on it because I also wanted to know, like, I, yeah, I think it's crazy that we literally have to show, oh, like, I'm a doctor or, like, I'm going to become a doctor. Or, oh, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing this great thing to prove my worth. Like, the fact that I'm not human is, is not enough for you. You know, like, I can't feel safe just for, exi- like, it's just crazy that we have to do so much to make up for. It. And I know all Black people have just been raised with their parents or their grandparents just saying, like, you have to be twice as good, you know, than white people essentially and it's just it's sad but that's really the reality we've lived in and i just want to also touch in on like the connection with covid with like this racial revolution that's been that's been happening because you know it's crazy because i read i remember when i was reading on covid19 that um it's actually really been a magnifying glass in a sense that's helped americans see kind of like these long-standing shortfalls in health um, because it's exposed so much of just like the failings in health that's really been happening in the black mm-hmm. community that we always kind of knew about, but you know, people who are black didn't really know about it. Um, and like I, you know, I always my research. So the research I found out was like, you know, there's so many factors that attribute to the health disparities in the black mm-hmm. community, all of course tied to systemic racism. Um, those of you guys who do not know what systemic racism is, that is when the system, right, the system that we're all currently living in, living in, which includes the schools that we go to, the neighborhood that we live in, whether we have investments, whatever, that is all racist in nature because white people have had a, a standpoint or like a head start in all of that compared to black people. So just starting off of that, we, we just have less, period. So like in regards to the wealth gap that, you know, um, occurs, which is like lower socioeconomic status, which um, increases the likelihood for someone to need to leave home to go to work. That's going to be COVID related because like I need to leave my house in order to Mm -hmm. get to my job, therefore exposing me more to the disease. You know, that's definitely a wealth gap issue. The fact that black people make up a higher percentage of essential and frontline workers, um, you know, Mm -hmm. the people who are right now, the nurses, you know, the people who are maybe, Mm -hmm. um, uh, food care, uh, food workers, or whatever people who are literally risking their lives. You know, th- those are mainly black people or other minorities. The inability to social distance, like we don't even think about it, but it's like they say, okay, social distance, but like everybody's living situation is not the same. You know, some people they go home and they're going home to just themselves. They were going to go home to a crowded house. Some people live in multi generational housing u- units, high density areas. How can you really expect somebody to just social distance? when it's like their living situation is already kind of, you know, more subpar than somebody else. And this is, of course, all tied to systemic racism. One more being higher rate of comorbidities amongst the Black people. So not only are you dealing with, like, you know, COVID, but you also have stress. You're living in a food desert. You don't have access to quality food. Being uninsured. I mean, these things are all, of course, making you more likely to get COVID. And so it's not just because we're Black, but we're dealing with all these other factors that is attributing us to getting COVID at higher rates. And so I just really thought that it's interesting that a disease just kind of exposed all of the reasonings as to why Black people have just been receiving the shorter stick when it comes to just life. But of course, especially when it comes to, you know, getting the disease. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was... Wow. (laughs) So. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I think both of you have said pretty much everything that's in my heart to say. Um, and the biggest, the biggest thing that the biggest Mm. takeaway for me is we, we fed up and to the, to the extent that we as a community felt compelled enough to literally say, screw COVID and protest on behalf 
of our lives, our Black lives mm-hmm. mattering. Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, yep. it's it's sad that Breonna Taylor's mm-hmm. assailants still have yet to be arrested. Oh. Um, it's, I mean, yep. there, there's so many that I could name. It's so sad. Um, we just recently saw mm-hmm. the uh, funeral of George Floyd occur. The funeral of yep. Rashard Brooks, I, I believe, occurred last week. Yeah. And now, now what's being shed light um, or who's being shed light on mm-hmm. is uh, the gentleman, Elijah McClain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who was just, I mean, like you mentioned earlier, Aldwin, you know, you're not a hood dude, but even if you were a hood dude, Facts. why is right. your life threatened? Like just because hood dudes exist yes. doesn't mean hood dudes should get shot at exactly. for, for, for anything. I mean, unless you're literally trying to take somebody's life, like you can, there are so many other ways that I'm sure they can disarm people who they who police feel are a threat. Additionally, mm-hmm. what about this training that these police officers receive? I mean, Ooh. there's so many it's we're, like we we can't even scratch the surface yep. right now, but there are just so many layers to this. And I just yeah. I hope that mm-hmm. we all remain inspired beyond COVID and and beyond even the current nature and current state of our community to continue to keep hope to continue to fight on and to continue to use each other and and just press forward because change has to come. If we keep believing change will come, change will come. And that's a fact. Literally, that's literally a fact. Like, And I also want to mention um, Oluwatoyan Salu. That's another person who... Oh, yep, yeah. Good Lord, yes. Yep, yeah. Yep. I, that I was heard, murdered that was along with a 75-year-old. That, like, that hit close kind of to like the Twitter world where like people had heard that she was missing and then all of a sudden it's like her sister finds her dead you know and it's yep. it's that was really scary for me just the fact that you know you could just one day be protesting i mean she was out there protesting like putting herself on the line like you know really like mm-hmm. out there and then now she's she's not there you know what i'm trying to say it's it's so it's crazy and it's 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 really sad how we as black people were willing to go through such lengths and we don't even know if we're safe or not doing that, you know, but we're still doing it for the greater cause. We're still doing it for the greater good of our community. And so, yeah, um, it's Enamad Arbery. I don't know if you touched on Ahmaud Arbery, um, Erica, but that's another person who um, also was killed. And it's just, I mean, it's just really funny, you know. There's just too many names to names at this point, to name yeah. at this point. And it's just, it's sad and you know what else I've found now? So the keeping with the Black Lives Matter, I guess, theme, I've noticed, and I'm sure you all have as well, that that all of a sudden these companies are kind of like pandering to us. Oh my so, god. So so okay, y'all wanna change Aunt Jemima's face? Like that don't mean nothing to me. I like my Aunt Jemima. I, y'all can leave her on there. I like my Uncle Ben. I want my mom and my dad to be able to recognize Uncle Ben's rice when they go shopping, so they're not in there looking for some new face. Okay, like keep keep mm. the brands, keep the brands. And then the biggest one that kind of had me ticked off was Band Aid. Oh, so God. you mean to tell me? Right. All of a sudden, y'all want to decide to change the colors like Black people ain't been cutting themselves, falling down, busting up ankles and elbows for the last however many years. And in fact, there is already a Black-owned Band-Aid company out there doing what we need exactly. them to do. True color. Like, one. One. How do y'all feel about this? I, just, I had to put 
True yeah. color bandages, it's... yes. Like I'm this is not endorsed by SMA, but this is endorsed by me. True color bandages, they've been there since 2014. They've been given yeah. a skin tone um, you know, bandages since 2014. Band-Aid now wants to hop on the bandwagon, but it's too late. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Isabella, I'm copping them. Thank you for that. You know, like you said, it, I'm and SMA may not endorse that, but I'm definitely gonna check on that. I haven't cut myself since probably 20, <laughs> 2007. But I'll still definitely just buy it because exactly. it's black owned. Like Erica mentioned, like these companies are coming out the woodworks and where was this energy? Like, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. Now you want to be donating money. For instance, um, the Netflix CEOs um, have donated $150 million yeah. to mm-hmm. communities of color. And I see this and I'm like, number one, I would like to know where this money is okay. going to exactly. Right. I wish I would know. Like, could you detail? Like, all right, ten million is going for scholarships to, uh, you know, black kids that are, you know, in a certain yeah. household income, and then fifteen million is going to start mental health initiatives, which include starting up a mental health clinic yeah. and et cetera, et cetera, right? But then, outside of the money, it's like, are you like, are you guys truly a proponent for this, or you're just it, it riding the wave? Sense to me, like, you know, I. I'm trying to figure out whether or not you making these changes, is it just for you to say you did something or is there actual work being done in the companies? You know, like you can't just put out some Mm band-aids and then you still have no black people working in your company. You're still racist. You still, you know, like you're, you haven't Mm -hmm. really done any work. And so I think it's just not just saying, okay, let's just put this out to cater to these people and shut them up. And, you know, that's enough. Like, no, you haven't done your part. Because at the end of the day, this is supposed to be a, a working of changing, slowly trying to change the system and change how things are done. Um, I listened to one of my favorite YouTubers is Jackie Aina. And she is like a beauty, like influencer kind of thing. And she like talked about how she wasn't going mm-hmm. to support certain brands until they gave out a list of who, how many black workers they have. Who are your black workers? How many do you have? And like, you know, and that's called Love putting it. your foot down. Like, of course, she's her coin. She could be, she could just yeah, decide and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm making money, right. so it doesn't affect me. But she knows that that's, that's right. being a sellout, essentially. Like, you can't just ride with the company even when they don't care about your life. You know what I'm trying to say? So we, as a Black community, have to be serious about, okay, do, do we, are these companies serving us? Mm-hmm. Are they serving our well-being as a community? And if not, are we going to continue supporting mm-hmm. them? And that's just, that's really what it comes down to, honestly. Isabella, you are right because I, I do agree with that. It's all about action and being proactive. You can say one thing, right? You could be about the words, right? You say what you want to do, but are you really about it? You say you're giving us money or you say you're about the Black Lives Movement, but are you hiring the people? Are you putting these people in position to be successful exactly. in these positions? For instance, I found out recently um, for Family Guy, the black guy that, uh, the voice actor that plays the black mm-hmm. guy in Family Guy is a white guy. He recently stepped down from that position because he supports the Black Lives Movement. Is like we should have Playing a black person black in this role. position. Like, He's a Caucasian what is going man. on? We have so, white people play black roles now. I know, I know. I didn't even know that. I was like, yo, bro, what? <laughs> so you you see things like that. It's like, yeah, there's a black guy. I mean, that's kind of awkward. He should, but yeah, but, but he losing the check. Sure, he losing the check yeah, though. Yeah, so I respect well, him. 
You know what I'm I ain't trying to hold y'all, but I'm sorry. I like his voice, and that might be the unpopular <laughs> opinion for the day. Um, I was actually, I was actually, no, I was actually kind of sad actually when I found that out because you know I'm a diehard Family Guy watcher, so no worries. Uh, he goes up there. He goes Peter Griffin. Yeah, so. I, I personally don't know how I feel about that, but big, bigger than anything, y'all, and you know it, what it boils down to, mm. if it makes dollars, it makes sense, right? Yep. We are mm. the top consumers, and these companies know exactly what they're doing because guess what? When we hit them in the pocket, right, that's when it's, oh, let's, let's do something now because yep. we don't want to lose our top consumers. And I mean... Down to top line companies, I've been getting emails like, "Here's our do, our excuse me, our diversity initiative, and this and that." And I mean, they they're reaching for our pockets, so it just it takes us to stay strong, right? We we are strong people. We are a joyful people, nonetheless. Okay. And now I kind of want to being with the being that That's we are it. joyful people i, I kind of want to talk about juneteenth real quick oh, yes. 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 okay see the <laughs> Alwyn was clearly lit on juneteenth no, he was lit I, lit he was lit lit oh uh, yeah i just want to tell I was you lit. i actually <laughs> participated in something wonderful so um, here at my school, we don't have an SNMA chapter yet, but we're working to get one. And we had a preliminary meeting for Juneteenth where everyone was invited. It wasn't just for Black students. And what we did was have a discussion. It was brought up by a uh, an upper med who is a Black student. And he just wanted to have the discussion, a dialogue about what it means to be Black in America. Because so many people that we go to school with have no clue. I have been stressed TF out the entire semester for a number of reasons. Um, one being the COVID crisis and then next, the other public health issue, which is racism, right? Racism, we know, is a public health issue. Yeah. And um, I've, I've just, I've been touched by it and so many of us have. And I've been expected to just put on in class, on Zoom, I, I, there's some days where I literally have not wanted to wake up and get out of bed, just being yep. depressed by everything that I'm seeing, my black brothers, my black sisters yeah. being murdered, and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. So bringing back the joy, we had a discussion. And when I tell y'all, it was amazing. Um, it was really insightful to hear from students that are not persons of color or that are other persons of color, like, um, either from, I'll give an example from Jordan, one of my classmates or schoolmates is from Jordan, and just hearing their takes on what racism is, racism is, excuse me, how we are all affected and how we can push the narrative forward. And so many of our, my classmates and schoolmates were like, you know, we want to learn. We want to help. Yeah. We love you. We appreciate you. And, and it was such, I mean, on Juneteenth, I, I couldn't turn up because I had exams coming up. But when I tell you, it was so satisfying yeah. to actually participate in such a commemorative holiday for our community in that manner. So I just wanted to share that. With yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Yeah, it was good. And then, I mean, also social media fun, right? Like there's just so much on social media to kind of help us get through. Like, you know, we are a creative 
people. Like, um, I, I, Facts. I saw the uh, That Wipe It Down challenge, and there was one that, like, hit me in my soul. It was a sister with her. She was <laughs> doing a Wipe It Down challenge on TikTok, and then the next scene went to her. I think she started it with, like, her boyfriend, and then he, like, every scene, he faded away, and it was like, stop killing us. So impactful. Wow. But again, the create creativity of our people is, like, unmatched. Yeah, no, unmatched. it's crazy. And, like, her, I just want to touch right back on Juneteenth because, you know, there may really be people listening to this podcast that have no idea what Juneteenth is, and so I just want to clarify because I feel like a lot of people... Yeah. A lot of people think, oh, Juneteenth yes, is the day please. that the slaves were free, you know, the chains were locked, but, you know, that's no. far from the truth, because we know that America's shady, we already know that, so we know it was okay? <laughs> yep. So basically, Juneteenth, um, to give a re- uh, kind of a background, is that many people um, believe that it was on June 19th, or that they were freed on June 19th, 1865, but actually it was on June 19th, 1865, mm-hmm. that Major General Gordon Granger and the Union soldiers informed the people in Galveston, Texas, that black slaves were now free. So mind you, this was two and a half years after- Two years later. That Lincoln yep. had signed the yep. Emancipation Proclamation when they were free on January 1st, 1863. Yep. So you have people in Galveston, Texas, that was just, yep. you know, what is it called? Yep. And Still doing all slaving. these things when there are other yep. people in other states yep. was out here free, you know? And so I just think that's crazy. Um, of course, but you know, there's a lot of crazy things that happen to our community. So I can't say I'm surprised, but, um, essentially that is Juneteenth. And I mean, for me, I just had myself, I mean, I can't match it to you, Eric, because this sounds like you were doing like a whole educational, very informative. And that's beautiful. Mine was kind of a little bit more low key. You know, I was, um, I was just having a blackie black (laughs) old time in my house. I watched Malcolm X. Then I watched, (laughs) then I watched I got a poster of him in my, oh, in my yeah. room, too. So I yeah, no, Malcolm, that's one of my favorite people. I watched Spike Lee's version, and I love, you know, I love his, um, the movie that he made on Malcolm X. I think that it really caught him in the most truthful light, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people um, have their own opinions about Malcolm X that aren't always positive. I'm not to say, you know, that anybody's opinion is false or not, but I think it was the most truthful view of him. Um, also, I, mm-hmm. of course, had my little fried chicken with my mac and cheese, my ice cream. And ice cream. Hey. I was big chilling. I was big chilling. It was, it was great. It was a great old time. Right, right. So yeah, but go ahead, Aldo. I know we want to hear about yours. We, we do. Well, for sure. Juneteenth was a great, great time. And uh, shout out to Isabella uh, for educating uh, the audience on the historical precedence no, of what to. Juneteenth is, because no, I, I think that's to. important. Because oftentimes people people celebrate things and then they don't really know what it's about. So I think that was well needed. Talking to Juneteenth, so I actually went to Atlanta and there was a protest that was starting. So I was like, oh, you know, there's a protest starting. And you know what I'm saying? And it's like, no justice, no peace and everything. And people just gathering. And they're like, yo, let's like go down and walk down this, these streets yeah. in Atlanta. So I just hopped on and joined them. And it was just beautiful because it, it was my first time really joining protests since everything's been going on because I've been kind of doing the groundwork from behind the scenes yeah. with advocacy. Mm-hmm. And so it was amazing to see we walking and then in downtown Atlanta, all these cars just honking like <laughs> beep, 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 beep. And I remember one time there was a car honking and then there was a little girl. She's probably like two, three years old in the back seat, sitting on her mother's lap. And she was just waving at us. And I'm like, the power yeah. of this movement. 
you know, for the art generation and the future generation, it's just so special and what it means and how, as we mentioned earlier, right, Erica and Isabella, like this is revolutionary. Like we are part of the revolution. This is something that maybe not our kids, but our kids, kids, they're going to read about this in social studies books and say, this is a special revolution. Like it's, it's not, you know what I'm saying? The Renaissance, yeah. this is ours yeah. for black people. And we can take hold of the importance of this and strategize and engage in our communities in a different way based off of the foundation of this and yeah. what's going on. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely dope. And then during the weekend, like I intentionally, so even the hotel that I got in uh, Atlanta for that weekend was a black owned hotel and all the restaurants or foods that I went to were all black owned. So I intentionally engage in that atmosphere because I want to celebrate black excellence. And that's what, you know, in a way Juneteenth is about. It's, a, it's about the fact that we are empowered to do something greater and we can't let the political arena or people exactly. deter us from what yeah, we're destined to be. Yeah. You know exactly. what I'm saying? And when we talk about uh, social media, um, for me, I, I just also want to mention that I want to give a shout out to SNMA and what they're doing on social media. We have the See Us campaign, which we started about a month or so ago. And it's essentially about showing the fact that we are medical students of color, but we are also leaders. We are also advocates and we enlighten and we want to ask even our audience that's listening to also be leaders in their yeah. own way. Now, you necessarily don't have to use social media, but if you get out there, if you write blog posts, which I do, if you connect with your political arena, if you talk to students at your school that aren't aware of how to be, quote unquote, yeah. woke, right? These are things that we can do and that we should be entitled to do because we're dealing with a huge burden no, right seriously, now. And you know what I mean? Social media and is so, such a great way for like everybody to connect, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to information being told. And yeah, I really, I, I also mm -hmm. very much appreciated SNMA's social, um, social media posts. They've on their stories. They've really like been giving some very factual information about individuals mm -hmm. who are key black um, leaders that we've had. And it's just been a great learning mm -hmm. tool because, you yep. know, not everybody that follows SNMA's social media page are necessarily black medical students. And now they're learning, you know, now they're learning right. things that they probably didn't know. Right. Um, it's, it's, a really great tool and just right. being able to go through my ig stories and just seeing just black everything and just everybody really trying to be conscious it's just been a really good light off the you know weight off of our all of our shoulders i think um because we know that we're not necessarily carrying the burden alone um the allies seem to be getting mm -hmm. kind of serious you know before i was like listen allies y'all need to stop trying to take the spot because this is a black issue and i know some allies were kind of getting a little bit it was getting a little bit excited, but, you know, I, I appreciate them um, really trying to step up to the plate and do, you know, um, do their part. So that way it's not like we're carrying the entire burden, considering we didn't do this to ourselves. Um, and it's just been a right. great way also, too, for us to just like have a little fun. You know, I saw that little post that said Beethoven was black and Twitter was having just a whole field day with that. I mean, I just thought that was really funny. And um, people have just kind of been just also using social media as a way to like not make everything just super depressing and too serious, because sometimes we also need to give ourselves a break. It's a lot to handle. It's a, it's a mental strain. It's an emotional strain. And we have the right you know, to kind of unwind and unload in whichever way we, we, you know, see fit. So, yeah, but that's, I've, I've really thought that social media has been a great tool um, for everybody. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. 
And also, shout out to SNMA because they also have a reading list. So I'm rereading Medical Apartheid and then the new Jim Crow Law. So if you, the audience, if you guys want to get in tune with some of the things that are important in our culture, and as well as be educated about these important topics, like make sure you, sh- you check out the uh, book list that SMA has put out because there's yeah, a lot a great to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just, I'm so full off of this conversation, like from the losses to the, <laughs> to the wins, to the laughs, the jokes. And I mean, honestly, like black people, we are so magic. Like we are magic. Okay. And I think yeah. We do an amazing job at using everything we're given to mobilize the movement. Seriously. So that that that's our wins and losses for the day. Um, next month. Yes, Erica. Yeah. So next month we'll be discussing how Miss Rona coronavirus. Okay. Coro uh, coro. African. I'm also I'm Nigerian, and we say coro. <laughs> Hallelujah! Wait, who was that supposed to sound like? All <laughs> ah, okay, Erica. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, girl. I didn't mean to. <laughs> it's okay. Next month, we will be discussing how Miss Rona Coronavirus has been affecting <laughs> our communities and what national organizations are doing about it. With Dr. Maybank, who happens to be the chief health equity officer of the American Medical Association. Because guess what, y'all? Miss Corona, shorty ain't going nowhere no time soon. And that's our list this week. We will be back after a quick advertisement. SNMA Presents The Lounge is also proud to be sponsored by the Levi Strauss Foundation in their support of the podcast and the work SNMA is doing. We appreciate y'all, so big shout out. Now let's get back to the show. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to SNMA Presents The Lounge. I'm student Dr. Aldwin, and I have the honor to be interviewing a very special guest today, Dr. Dale. Let me give you a little brief bio about Dr. Dale. Dr. Dale Okorodudu is a critical care doctor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and founder of both Diverse Medicine and Inc. and Black Men in White Coats. He is the author of five books, including Pre-Med Mondays, How to Raise a Doctor, and most recently, Black Men in White Coats. He is also our founding sponsor, fellow podcaster, as host of the podcast Black Men in White Coats, husband and father of three. Thank you for taking the time to join us today, Dr. Dale. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Super excited you guys got this going. Before we get into the tough questions with you, we're going to start with the real tough questions, the real tough spitfire questions. Let's so, do it. Um, my first question is, Martin or Fresh Prince? Martin. Martin. Ah, okay. Martin. Why Martin? Man, Martin's the, <laughs> Martin's the, he's the originator, man. He was, he was, I'm pretty sure it was before Fresh Prince, right? So a lot of the Fresh Prince, and I love Fresh Prince too, man. But, you know, a lot of the Fresh Prince jokes just came right off, right out of Martin, man. Right. I mean, <laughs> woo, 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 woo. Gina. You know, goodness, you can't, you gotta love Martin. I might have to go put that on tonight, man. Yeah, it's a classic for sure. Like, you can never go wrong. You could watch it over and over reruns and never get tired of it, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. My second question so, if you're, you know, looking for food, right, you open a refrigerator, right, and mm-hmm. you got mom's food and grandmother's food in the refrigerator, 
Which whose food are you gonna choose first? That's easy for me. Mom's <laughs> definitely because my grandma my that's because my grandmother's one, you know, um I was born in Nigeria. I grew up in America and everything, but I was born in Nigeria, so my grandparents lived in Nigeria, so mm-hmm. that that wasn't even an option for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what my grandmother's food tastes like, you know, so right. my mom's food is delicious. So Okay. That's what's up. And my last question is, so if you had to pick between MJ and Prince, you know, there's always debate who's better, who got better dance moves. Of course, we know who the better singer is, but MJ versus Prince, who you got to take? Man, MJ, man, what kind of question is that? <laughs> I ain't do it. Don't look at me. I'm not the one that man. said it. <laughs> MJ, man. I feel purple, purple rain. I'm down with all that. But MJ, man, come on now. Right. Facts. Right, facts. You know, rest in peace to both of those legends. So, um... Get into a little bit something more serious, you know, and uh, like I mentioned before, I do appreciate everything that you're doing in the community. I mean, I've been following you for a little while um, over the last several years with what you do in the community. And um, I know that you you go out and have events where you're, you allow black men from various backgrounds, whether they're pre-meds, high school students, medical students to come and get connected and um, learn more about what medicine is about. And I think that initiative is important in today's society where there's such a lack of black men in medicine. We found that the numbers have not increased since the 1970s. In fact, in the WAMC's Altering the Course, black men in medicine report the number of applicants and first-year matriculants are declining. But why do you think there is such a lack of black men in medicine? Man, good question. And there's a, a plethora, a lot of answers to that question. We're actually in the process. We're actually finishing up our documentary film um, on this exact topic. So I've, I've heard a lot of intellectual people opine on that here. Um, before I give you my answer, I do want to say, you know, um, you mentioned that black men and white coats, we let black men come through, but, you know, we, we let black black women are in there too. So I, I do want to make that, make sure that's clear. So we probably have just as many young girls and women in these events as we do black men, but we call it black men in white coats for that exact reason that you stated, because we know the number of black men were declining. And sometimes if you don't specifically call out a black man, he's not going to show up, right? Right. So... So we call them out specifically and let them know, hey, this is for you also. Now, so you know, so why are they why is it declining, man? It's a lot, a whole lot of reasons, man. The first thing that I always go to is this thing that you hear over and over and over. I don't know who started it, but everybody says you can't be what you can't see. Mm. Right. So there's not very many of us. There's two percent of all the doctors in America are black men, roughly two percent, right? You have about a million doctors in the country, roughly two percent of them are are black men. It's not very many doctors there. So when you have young black boys mm-hmm. who were thinking, what can I be when I grow up? When they look around, they see the athletes, they see the the artists, they see the, you know, the rappers, they see mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. But what they do not see are the black men. That's because the black men are in clinic. The black men are, you know, are in the operating room. So unfortunately, you know, we can't be out and about as much as we'd like to sometimes, which is, you know, why we started Black Men on White Coast to try to change that. But I say that's the primary reason, right? That's the primary reason. And, and beyond that, there's a million other reasons I can get into, but you know, we'd be here all day talking about that. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And I, I definitely agree with you. You are what you see, you know, um, for me coming from the South Bronx, oftentimes I didn't meet my first uh, doctor of color until I got into undergrad and I shadowed him in the ER. And so um, when there's a lack of opportunity to have access to people that look like you, then you're just going to envision your dreams to be elsewhere, like you, like you mentioned, whether you're an athlete or, and of course, that's certainly an option, but that's not always an option for everybody. You know, everyone has a niche and a, a role to play in society. And exactly what you said. And, and you know, when we started Butman White Coats, mm-hmm. to your point, 
the reason we start, so I mean, we started this, I don't know how many years ago, 2013, 2013, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then, well, a big thing that was missing was you didn't see this. Now you, you put it on social media now mm-hmm. and you see black men everywhere. Excuse me. <clears throat> you see black men and white coats everywhere on social media. But back in the days, you know, when I was a resident, that wasn't the case by any means. So what we were what we were aiming to do was to make the black male physician relevant to society, right? So right. that's why we started making the videos and everything. And and that's what's missing. These young kids didn't think we were relevant because they never saw us. Right. Yeah, so that's certainly true. Um, and, I, and that brings me to my next question. When we do get black men in medicine, and I've seen it um, being in medical school, and I'm, I'm now a fourth-year medical student at PCOM Georgia, and um, oftentimes um, many black men aren't equipped to match into competitive specialties. And then also, when they get into medical school, they're not equipped to be successful in medical school. Uh, For me, uh, for instance, I I had difficulty kind of transitioning and feeling comfortable in my environment. Imposter syndrome is is something that's real. You know, I always questioned Mm -hmm. whether I belong there. And I think when I try to interpret that, that affected how I looked at being successful and being in a place where I could say, hey, I, I really could be the neuropsychiatrist that I want to be, which is the field that I want to go into. So what do you think are things that we can do or implement into the black man's experience in medical school and helping them get into competitive specialties? Um, you know, let me let me go back initially when you mentioned that black men aren't, aren't equipped. I'm not sure I wouldn't necessarily say we're not equipped. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps in some situations we might not be as equipped, but... Mm-hmm. In other situations, it's just like you said, you get the imposter syndrome comes on you because you're in an environment that might not feel natural to you. And and I don't want to take the blame off of the black man because I'm somebody who says we always have to start at home. Right. right. So if you if you want to do something, you got to start it with yourself and you got to go out there and achieve it. So I don't want to put the blame on somebody else here. But you look at you look at schools like, you know, the HBCUs, you look at Howard, you look at Meharry, Morehouse, Drew. Black men and women come out of those schools and go into very competitive fields, mm-hmm. right? And they're in these environments where they're surrounded by people who look like them, who might think like them, who might talk like them, where they feel comfortable. And they're no more equipped than you or I. I went to a PWI, sounds like you did too, right? They're not, <laughs> yeah. they're, they are no more equipped than I was, right? Mm-hmm. They chose, they, they just went to HBCU school where their environment was equipped for them. Right. Right. So, so I don't want to say they weren't equipped. The environment was better equipped to handle them. Um, now, so, you know, going back, you said, what, why can we what can we do to help them get into more competitive specialties? You know, the first question is, I would always say we shouldn't always assume that they can't necessarily get into the specialty. Some people just don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's one thing that I would, I would keep in mind. And for those individuals who do want to, that don't, again, a lot of this is going to come back to this idea of mentoring. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we can establish programs where they know who to turn to. And and let me make sure I'm clear with this mentoring thing. You don't have to have a black mentor. Right. Right. It doesn't have to be a black mentor. You just have to have somebody who cares about you and who wants to see you succeed. This term mentor comes from mm-hmm. the Odyssey. It's an epic tale, the Odyssey. And Odysseus goes on this long journey and he goes on this journey to go slay giants and kill beasts and you know do all this stuff. And he's got a son. His son's name is Telemachus. So he leaves his son behind because he can't take him on this journey. So he says, he goes to his friend and says, hey, mentor, his friend's name is Mentor. He says, hey, Mentor, can you take care of my son while I'm gone? Mm-hmm. So when you, when you think about that, think about what the term mentor actually means. That's deep, man. Right. That's deep to say, I'm going to entrust you with the responsibility to make sure my son is success, successful. So black men need people like that in the field of medicine to, to really back them, to support them. And it's hard to find. Yep. It's just hard to find because there's not enough of us in there 
that we can relate to. So that means sometimes we got to go outside of our race, which is fine, but sometimes you don't feel as comfortable. But, you know, a lot of the stuff about success and matching, a lot of that just deals with what kind of guidance you have to prepare for that field. Right. That's, that's very having access to a mentor is so critical and moving forward and being progressive and successful, like you mentioned. And now that we're talking about mentorship, what the audience needs to know is that you also have you know, several books that talk to mentorship, how to raise a doctor and the pre-med Mondays book. So can you enlighten the audience on um, what those books entail and uh, what are the important qualities that people should find in mentors? We put out the first Black Men and White Coast video series, and you know they were circulating online. And a young mother reached out to me. She sent me a message, said, "Hey, Dr. Dale, I'm a young single mother. I'm raising a black boy. Please, what can I do to help him become a doctor?" So I thought to myself, "Wow, I've never raised a doctor. Like, I, I don't know what to tell her." So what I did was I got a whole bunch of my friends, and I said, "Hey, can you connect me with your parents?" So I interviewed and surveyed over 75 parents and physicians. And I put their wisdom, their guidance in that book called How to Raise a Doctor. And I put it on the background of kind of my life and what my parents raised me and such. So that's where that guidance in that book comes from, from parents who actually raised doctors. So that book was specifically written Mm -hmm. for those parents out there whose kids are dreaming big and they don't know how to do it. So, you know, we gave them a guide said, hey, this is what the parents who have done it. This is how they did it. And, you know, what takeaways are in that book? Um, quite a few takeaways. The first thing I would say is it has to be your child's dream. Mm. You know, it can't be your dream. It has to be your child's dream because what you see is a lot of parents trying to push this on their kids when it's not really their child's dream, right? And then sometimes you see it the other way around where kids want to do it, but the parents don't support them. Right. I see quite a, I see, I see quite a bit of that too. Um, and then there's, you know, quite a few other things in that book that are just excellent gems. The second book, Pre-Med Mondays, I wrote that just because what I was finding was there were so many young individuals, pre-meds, who wanted to do what we're doing, but they had zero guidance, mm-hmm. right? They had nobody to reach out to. And, you know, we, we do diverse medicine and things of that sort, mm-hmm. so we try to set those things up for them as well. But so many of them, you know, still, even within that, they, they just had no guidance whatsoever. And mentorship is a very difficult thing. To be a good mentor is a difficult thing. So what we wanted to do was give them something that, where they had consistent gold, you know, just excellent guidance mm-hmm. every week. So Premier Mondays is 52 letters that I've written personally wow. to the reader um, just to give them that that solid guidance. And the third book um, is uh, Black Men in White Coats. And what that is, that's the that's the first 20 guests from my podcast. Mm-hmm. The first 20 guests from my Black Men in White Coats podcast, that's their guidance that we put in that book for, for pre-meds and others to read and just to keep them on track for success. Right. I mean, that's amazing. You know, t- talk about mm-hmm. being an author and just the way that you've been um, incredibly insightful with um, your understanding of what mentoring is and how to inspire and educate particularly minorities, but also pre-med students into getting to medicine, I think is definitely incredible. And for our audience that's listening, make sure you check out How to Raise a Doctor Pre-Med Mondays and also Black Men in White Coats. I'm sure there's a lot of gems that you guys have to tune in and access. Uh, I'm sure. I'm gonna tell you. I, so actually, I um, I probably shouldn't say this. I think I'm running. <laughs> I'm running short. I'm running short on my stock. But I actually give all those books out for free. Um, uh, I, I'll have to. I'll have to give you the website. Maybe you guys can share it and post it. But I actually mm-hmm. give all those books out for free. You just pay shipping and handling by two bucks, two ninety nine, and I I buy the books and I give them to the very people for free, so you guys can have them. But um. I probably shouldn't say that, man. <laughs> my, my stock, my stock is running low. I'm gonna have to go buy a whole bunch more. But just trying to get them out to the people, however I can. Right, 
Yeah, I mean that's 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 so incredible. Like, I mean, just you know, being able to just give access to that, and we appreciate that. You know, I'll definitely tune into um, those books as well because I think it's so important. Talking more a little bit about um, mentorship. So, how do you maintain a mentorship in, in um, moving forward as a pre med or medical students? And what are there any general tips that you would give for someone that can't find a mentor? Um, the first tip I would say is go to diversemedicine.com. Nice. Um, diversemedicine.com. We have mentors there, you know, waiting. Students just got to take advantage. So we have, we have doctors, you know, med students, people who are on the website. And um, essentially, it's an automated mentoring platform. You go there, you request a mentor. The mentor agrees or doesn't agree. And once you get your mentor, then we have a 12 uh, a 12-month plan that's automated, built out for you. You get a message every month saying, check in with your mentor. Here's what you should talk about. So we try to make it as easy as possible for, for them. Um, so that's one way. Other way, of course, you know, if you can find somebody in person that you could do this type of stuff with, right? So if there's somebody in the local community, and I, and I get it, mm-hmm. I know it's hard, but it's there, there's nothing like sitting down across the table from somebody, mm-hmm. right? And talking to them and letting them, you know, look in your eyes and hearing the intonations in your, in your voice and such, you know, that that's that's very powerful. I mean, that's the type of mentor you, you want if you can get it. it something with mentorship that I, I have to emphasize because students... I think pre-meds mess up on this so much, right? And med students, people mess up on this so much. The onus for the for the mentorship relationship, mm-hmm. it's on you as a mentee. It's not on the mentor, it's on you, right? So if you want to be mentored, it's your responsibility to pursue that mentor. It's your responsibility to reach out that once a month, to update them, mm-hmm. to say, hey, can we do this? To say, to never miss a call. I tell you, one of the biggest pet peeves, and of course, I do a lot of stuff with tons of mentors, right? And one of the biggest pet peeves that, that I get back as feedback mm-hmm. is, man, Dr. Dale, this person didn't respond. I mean, can you imagine being a, a busy physician <laughs> and you've, you've set aside time to talk to a pre-med and they don't show up for the call, mm-hmm. right? It, that's not going to make you want to set that time aside you know, right. next month because you're going to think they're not going to show up again. So that's want to remind pre-meds, med students, resident, everybody, if you if you're going to somebody to give you advice, guidance, wisdom, the responsibility is on you. You you should be the one reaching out. You should be the one never missing a meeting. You should be the one saying thank you all the time, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's the same for me. I have people who mentor me, and I, I do my best to be that individual to let them know that I appreciate them. Right. I certainly agree. And you mentioned uh, diverse uh, in medicine. And could you talk more about, uh, you did talk a little bit about it, but can you talk more about um, what that represents to you and the meaning of of it, diversity in medicine, and what do you foresee for it in the near future, let's say in the next three to five years of it impacting our communities, uh, specifically pre-med and pre-meds and, uh, in regards to mentorship? Yeah, so diverse medicine kind of has, I guess it's two arms, right? So I started a nonprofit diverse medicine probably about 10 years ago now. And, um, you know, we, that's where we started doing a lot of our mentoring things of that sort. We, you know, we ran mentoring programs for several years. Mm-hmm. And what that kind of shifted more into is running our Black Men and White Coats Youth Summit here in Dallas. So, you know, in Dallas, we have Black Men and White Coats Youth Summit. We get a thousand people show up mm-hmm. for these summits and, you know, these great big events. Um, so diverse medicine is, is we run all that stuff. Right. So my nonprofit runs that. And then I've got diversemedicine.com, which is um, a tech platform that we built. Um, put a lot, a lot of time, money, years, and energy to build this tech platform for you guys. So you guys take advantage of it. It's free. So, you know, we built it with the idea of being a, a place to connect people who are on this track, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go there, you can get a mentor, you can go there, you create your profile. It's kind of like a LinkedIn profile. So when you're ready to apply to med school, you have everything there in one spot. 
You can um, share your profile with deans, whoever you want to share it with. We have med school recruiters that use the site to come talk to pre-meds and such. So, you know, we got a lot of stuff going on there. We built it so so no pre-med can say, hey, I I couldn't get access to this. You know, that's a lie now. If you have right. internet, you can get access to it. You just have to you just have to choose to to go out and find it. And you know, we have that stuff. We're not the only place. A lot of there's a lot of resources online now that you can go get access to stuff. So that should never be an excuse anymore. Right. Um. And then, you know, the name, the name just came when we, when I came up with the name several years ago, we just envisioned medicine becoming more diverse. And it wasn't just, it's not just like the people of medicine, but just what medicine stands for in and of itself. Medicine isn't just, you know, being in the hospital, the practice of medicine is diverse, right? Mm -hmm. As a physician, you are diverse. I'm not just a doctor in the hospital. When I go in the community, people, people respect our voices as physicians, right? We have diverse roles in society. So that diverse medicine is powerful. It's just to remind us, hey, medicine, first of all, I believe should be, you know, representative of the population in terms of who's there. And then second of all, just remind us as physicians, hey, we're diverse. We're more than the white coat. Mm -hmm. That's 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 very true. So you audience, you heard it. Make sure you check diverse medicine and make sure you find a mentor and be consistent and be reliable in regards to whatever <laughs> mentorship you find on there. Because Dr. Dale will come down on you. So no. Yeah, man, we're gonna, we're gonna track you down, bring it all S to the main. What we find off, oftentimes is that um, as a pre-med, um, like we mentioned, it, it's difficult to find mentorship. But as this pre-med transitioned over to medical school, what do you think there are some things that we can do as medical students in um, creating the diversity that you've already cultivated and implementing change in terms of recruiting more Black men into the pipeline and showing and showcasing the fact that being in the white coat is powerful, but there's more to it than being in the white coat. It's also being able to be in our communities, be a leader, be someone that's respected, as you mentioned, be someone that can connect, not just with other physicians of color, but also connect with communities of color, whether you go to the barbershop or you go to the lounge. Um, so what, what? how do you feel we can start implementing this change? I'm just going to say I love the way you threw in the lounge right there. That was pretty smooth, man. I like that. Thanks. Um, you know, it, it it goes back. You know, before I answer that fully, let me say one thing. The people, you know, my ultimate goal, and people don't understand this. I don't talk about this much. My ultimate goal with Black Men and White Coast, Diverse Medicine, these films, all the stuff I do, is not necessarily to, to make one kid's dream come true. I love that, right? I, I do love that. I love seeing the kids, you know, this week alone, I don't know how many people have messaged me that we mentor through our organization saying I got into med school, mm, right? We wow. get this stuff all the time. And, and I love that. I love that feeling. But my ultimate goal is not just for somebody to become, to get into med school, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we train leaders. That's what we do in my organizations. We spend a lot of time making sure people can learn the skills of leadership. Um, and then along with that, what comes with that, for me, what I'm really interested in is the influence and the impact we can have on society at large, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Alwin, I'm not so as concerned about you becoming a doctor. Mm -hmm. What I'm concerned about is you becoming a person of influence in society, mm -hmm. right? You become a doctor. What does that mean for you? That means you have a little bit more money in your pocket now. Mm -hmm. That means you have more more um, economic power in society. So mm -hmm. your dollar your dollar means something. You got a lot of dollars because you're a doctor now. That means your voice is louder. And that's how the change works, you know. Okay. Um, I am happy that you get to practice medicine and do all that. But in my opinion, if we really want to have the impact that we're looking for, the stuff we're seeing out there, you know, the George Floyd, all that stuff that's going on right now, mm -hmm. if we want to be in a position to actually change that stuff, people wearing white coats have to step outside of the hospital, right? right. So for me, every 
every individual that makes it, that gets that diploma, that gets to put on that white coat. I'm excited you get to practice medicine. I'm cool. I love that. I'm happy about that. But I'm more optimistic and hopeful that you're going to take that platform as a physician and go out and do things with it that, that can really impact change, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's really why we do what we do. And, you know, going back to your question, what can we do? So I think the one of the most important things, one of the things that's, that's really lacking is we're just not going back into the communities. Mm-hmm. Not enough of us are going back. Mm-hmm. We don't go, don't go into the schools, don't talk, right? You know, we do stuff at schools and, and the schools we go to, they'll be like, yeah, nobody comes here. But I'm like, why does nobody come here? Right. You know, and they don't have to be black. I don't care what color you are. Somebody should go to these schools and talk to these kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's just my thing. I just think people, you know, whatever we can do to get out there. If you can't, if you can't physically go to the school, make a podcast, right? right. You know, and like, like this, there's no, there's no competition in podcasts. People listen to a million podcasts. We need, we need more podcasts. Make a podcast, right. you know, just do something to get, to get your voice out there to influence people, right? Right. And I think you said something incredibly powerful in the fact that you're not just a physician. You have responsibility to do more as a leader and whatever that niche may be. There's so many ways to find a niche where you can make a grander influence and impact. And I, and I definitely resonate with that because that's how I felt coming into medical school. I was like, I'm not here just to sit down and learn all these biochemical pathways. I also want to learn what else can I do to make such a significant influence on those that I may not truly connect with or I may not see or I may not encounter on a day-to-day basis, you know. So yeah. I certainly and, um, and 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 as not to offend anybody, I, I do understand some people's um passion is completely in medicine. So I don't want to discredit that, right? right. So if you want to be the master physician and spend your time doing that, we need that too. Right. right? We need we need all those people. But you know, there needs to be a certain percentage of us a, a, and a significant percentage of us that really focus on moving the ball forward and and making sure the numbers don't drop. Right. Certainly. And you mentioned numbers not dropping. So um, in terms of, you know, like we mentioned earlier, there's the numbers are dropping for uh, black pre-med males around the country. But for that black pre-med male that's listening now, that's saying to himself, hey, I don't know if I can make it through this MCAT or my GPA is too low or am I in the right major or um, I can't find the right mentors. What is one thing you would say? to uh, create a, a confidence in them to continue to move forward? You know, I'll tell them that at the end of the day, at the end of the tunnel, what they need to remember is that there is a patient mm. 10 years, 15 years out who's waiting for you to make it. Mm. There is, there is a, somebody dying in a bed. They don't know, they don't know it yet, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know it yet. But there is somebody who is waiting for you to become a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So they're relying on you to make this, right? So this isn't just about you getting past the MCAT. It's not just about, and I'm not trying to put pressure on you, but I want you to, I want you to understand this. And for me, being in the position, for those of us who are physicians now, it makes perfect sense to us, right? Because we right. see this on a daily basis. Had I not made it, I wouldn't have been here to take care of this patient, mm. you know? And maybe somebody else would have taken care of them. Probably so. I don't know. But it was my calling to be the doctor for this patient. It is your calling to be the doctor for a patient who's waiting for you. Mm-hmm. So, so keep that in mind, right? Keep keep that in mind as, as you're working through this. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be ups and downs. But also remember that all of us go through difficulties. Right. All of us go through difficulties. We we all have our thing that we struggle with. And at the end of the day, we push through. 
to go to get to our calling. You push through to get to your calling, right? We work hard. We don't quit. We don't give up. It might take one year, two years, three years, four years, 10 years. But if that's your calling, your calling will happen. It will come to fruition. So, you know, that, that that's that's what I would remind people. Don't quit. You know, you mentioned who doesn't have that MCAT. Who doesn't? My MCAT wasn't great, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, I, I got through. I made it. My wife, uh, she's a doctor too. Um, we went to undergrad together and then she ended up going to a different med school. She went to Meharry. I was at Missouri. And then, but when she was applying to med school, people told her not to apply her advisors. People would say, don't apply to med school. You're not going to get it. You're not, you know, like rethink this. You want to consider the PA route. This this is the talk. But I remember, I'll never forget what my wife told me. She says, you know what, Dale, I'm going to apply to med school. I'm going to let the admissions committees tell me no. I'm not going to let them tell me no. I'm going to let the admissions committee tell me no. She got into two med schools. You know, she's a doctor. Right. <laughs> you know, had she listened to these people talking down in their head, you know, she wouldn't be where she's at. Right. Yeah, all it all it takes is one school, you know. I, exactly. I, I was talking to one of my mentees the other day, and she goes to school up in PA, and the her advisor is telling her to go the LPN route, and she's like, no, I want to be a doctor, you know. And I'm like, you know what? Dro- drop that advice. I'll be advisor. I'm not trying to. Nobody should deter you from your dreams. If you believe in it, um, then you'll certainly make way for it. Exactly. But with with the caveats that you got to put in the work. Right. right? So some people be out here thinking, oh, I'm going to go to med school <laughs> and they got a 2.0 GPA, but they don't put in the work. I can't help you. Right. If, you, if you're willing to put in the work, somebody's going to take you just because they, they appreciate that work ethic. But you, you got to put in the work, man. Right. That's certainly true. Well, let me get my step two studying materials ready because that was that was really good. Like, all right, I'm I'm thinking of my patient right now, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the waiting for you all and the waiting for you. man. Right. Right. Certainly. Certainly. So before we go, um, you know, we definitely appreciate you and uh, all the knowledge and wisdom you've laid down uh, today. But before we go, I also want to ask you to also inform the audience that how can they get in touch with you? How can they? Uh, follow your podcast and your journey and what you're doing for our communities. So please lay it down on them. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. So blackmenandwhitecoats.org, blackmenandwhitecoats.org. That's all our, our black men and white coat stuff. Um, diversemedicine.com is probably what's going to be most useful to the pre-meds listening here. Diversemedicine.com. Uh, social media, man, I'm not the best. I don't even run our social media accounts to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, yeah. Social media is at team BMWC. That's at Team BMWC. And my personal, I don't even be messing with my social media for real like I should. But find me on diversemedicine.com and follow us at Team BMWC. That's right, audience. Make sure you follow him. Make sure you check out Diverse Medicine. Make sure you check out Black Men and White Coats. They're doing great things. And last but not least, our fun question. Last fun question of the day. Okay. Before you, before you do the fun question, I'm going okay. to do the the SMA plug too. Oh, Y'all follow SMA, sure. MAPS. All that stuff, you know, all of us, I was a member of all that stuff, so y'all make sure y'all doing all this. I know you're going to say it anyways, but I'm just going to double plug it. You're right. Y'all follow SMA, Maps, retweet the podcast, all that jazz. Subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. So, um, in your opinion, if you had to choose MJ versus these three individuals, which of these three individuals would be most likely to be MJ? And I'm biased. But I'll let you answer we're talking, first. We're, t- we're, talking, we're talking Jordan, MJ, this yeah, time. Yeah, Michael Jordan, my bad. Yes. <laughs> yes, Michael I'm not, Jordan. I'm, I'm going to give you my... Yeah, check it out. I'm going to give you my answer before you even tell me who it is. Oh, okay. The options. Okay. I'm going to give you... Go ahead. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess the three individuals that I think you got. Okay. I'm The answer <laughs> out of the three that I think you're going to say, I'm going to say Kobe. Yes. Was, was, Kobe, was Kobe on your list? Yes, he was. 
All right. And I'm going to guess the other one you list is, is LeBron. Yes. And then the last one you list, I'm, I don't know. I don't I'm know. Guess AI? Nah, it was a random one. It was Steph Curry. <laughs> All right, so Steph Curry would not beat him. Yeah. <laughs> Steph's my guy, though. I love it. I love Steph Curry, but um, I don't know. I'm just a Kobe fan, and not not even. Be, I don't know if he beat MJ or not. I don't know if anybody beat MJ, but I just love I just love Kobe's mentality, Mamba man. I just I just love that mentality. Well, I'd like to thank you, Doctor Dale, for coming on. This was great. Um, yeah. Like yeah. as you mentioned, make sure you check out all the endeavors he's doing: Black Men and White Coats, Diverse Medicine. He has a lot of initiatives that are coming up, so please stay tuned to what he's got in store. And I would like to thank you again for sponsoring our podcast and being our first interviewee. It's, it's been an incredible experience, and I know the audience um, has learned a lot. And we look forward to seeing what else more you do. I know there's a lot more in store. Welcome back, everyone. This is student Dr. Erica Dingle. So today's moment of mindfulness is occurring here in the lounge. And it's important to us that we make sure that everyone is prioritizing their mental health. These are stressful times, and we want to make sure that you all are taking care of yourselves. So we have simple ways to incorporate wellness into your busy schedules. Today, we'll be doing a simple breathing exercise that you can use to center yourself in stressful times. Pick three numbers between one and 10. I'm picking seven, three, and five. So I breathe in for seven counts, I hold for three counts, and I exhale for five counts. Now I want y'all to do this with me, all right? You ready? So in for seven, I'm holding for three, and I'm exhaling for five. That is your moment of mindfulness for the day. I hope you incorporate it into your daily practice. Thanks, guys. All right, what's good, people? We hope you're enjoying the discussion so far, but we want to hear from you, too. To join the conversation and provide your opinion, please reach out to us at podcast at snma.org with your thoughts on this week's episode for a chance to be featured in consults our listeners' letter segment. And if you know a MAPS chapter, a SNMA chapter, or SNMA alum doing big things, we want to hear about that too. So email us, get a shout out, represent, represent. We want y'all to put on, so let us know the energy. We trying to feel the vibes, you dick. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and thanks again for tuning into SNMA Presents the Lounge. I'm student Dr. Isabella, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to interview two amazing individuals today, Dr. Gilbert Gonzalez and Dr. Isaiah Cochran. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to speak with us today. So I can't get into these questions just yet until I've introduced who both of you are and what you've done so far uh, to contribute to the areas of health and medicine. So to begin, um, starting with Dr. Gonzalez, um, you have a master's in health administration, a PhD in health policy focusing on LGBT health. Health. You're an assistant professor at the Center of Medicine, um, Health and Society, the Program for Public Policy Studies, and the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University. Uh, professor Gonzalez's research examines how public policies affect health outcomes, access to care, and health disparities for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender populations. So that is Dr. Gonzalez. 
Uh, moving on to Dr. Isaiah Cochran. Um, he is the immediate past president of AMSA, the American Medical Student Association, a major medical student organization with a keen focus on policy and with whom SNMA collaborated to present our first ever virtual annual medical education conference. Dr. Cochran earned his medical degree from the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine in Dayton, Ohio, and is currently a family medicine resident at Halifax Health in Daytona, Florida. So thank you guys once again for coming on here. So to start, um, we just want to ensure that our audiences, you know, kind of understand the differences between gender identity and sex. Um, you know, our audience kind of ranges from pre-med to medical student, possibly even some resident physicians and physicians who follow us. Um, but, you know, the spectrum of how much people may know about uh, gender identity versus sex is still, you know, very skewed. And so if you got if you guys could just kind of both um, give your own personal um, definition of, you know, the difference between those two terms, um, that would be great. Sure, I'll go ahead and begin. Um, so for me, sex is oftentimes um, thought about as biological sex. Um, what is the genetic makeup or genetic markers that may identify your biological sex? And oftentimes we assign that at birth as male or female and, and rarely intersex, but that is changing um, uh, uh, very rapidly. And then there's gender identity. Um, what does a person feel like that their gender is and how do they express um, their gender on the outside. And for um, some of us, that's male or female. Um, but for some of us, it may be a transgender identity. So someone who was born um, as, uh, as male um, may feel that they are female and eventually, um, if, if they want to, transition uh, uh, to, a, uh, to a more female expressing person. And we would call that person a transgender person. Yeah, I was just going to say that certainly is a, a great explanation. So I, I, I won't repeat that, but I'll just add, it's so important to, to understand the differences between the two because uh, as future uh, healthcare providers and, and students of medicine, it is very important for us to understand where our patients are coming from. And uh, that is number one, when you're working with patients, you have to approach them uh, the right way, whether it be uh, using the correct pronouns or, you know, respecting cultural uh, differences. It is very important to understand this. So somebody uh, was assigned to certain sex, but uh, identifies as a, a certain gender, uh, as a healthcare professional, we must do our best to, uh, number one, figure out uh, if they identify um, by a different uh, identity than they have uh, that's on their birth certificate. And then uh, beyond there, we need to make sure that we do our best as uh, young physicians and as leaders of the healthcare team to uh, inform the rest of our uh, team members of that as well. It's very important. I've seen uh, interactions with patients uh, who are transgender uh, that have gone wonderfully uh, just by simply using uh, pronouns properly. And I've seen uh, visits go very badly because the respect was not there. Mm. Yeah, no, that's super important. Thank you for uh, making note of that to the audience. And yeah, so just uh, moving off of that, um, I want to start with you, Dr. Gonzalez. So could you just kind of tell us more about um, your work and how a master's of health, health administration kind of led to a PhD and now how you've used that to serve um, the LGBT community? 
Sure. Um, I will say that I did my I did the MHA or Masters of Healthcare Administration um, because of the Great Recession ten years ago. I graduated from undergrad in two thousand and eight, and the economy was tanking, and so I managed to um, mm. stay in grad school for a little bit longer. I knew I was not. I was no longer interested in going to medical school, but I knew um, I wanted to go into public health. Um, I just didn't know how to do that. And so I got into an MHA program and, um, you know, I was very fortunate to have advisors say, you're pretty good at quantitative research and quantitative analysis. Have you ever mm -hmm. thought about doing a PhD in health policy? And, you know, I'm a Hispanic person uh, from uh, uh, South Texas, and no one in my life ever ever recommended that I do a doctoral degree. So I was very fortunate to have advisors to point me that direction. Um, and so I went to the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. I did a PhD in health policy there, and, and, and I stumbled into LGBT health research um, because <laughs> and, and it, when I started my PhD, I thought I would do children's health research. Um, but again, it was just um, a matter of luck that some data fell into my hands. Uh, and mm -hmm. at the time, we weren't asking sexual orientation or gender identity, but we would look at health and access to care for people in same-sex households. And that led me into uh, my career uh, in LGBT health research. And I use um, secondary data sources, uh, data sets that are either collected by the CDC or the U.S. Census Bureau to identify, mm -hmm. to track, to monitor LGBT health disparities. Um, and and this, this ranges from everything from mental health to physical health, chronic disease. Thank you, Dr. Cochran, for that response. And I just also wanted to note, um, you mentioned, um, you know, being president of AMSA. And so I wanted to ask you if you could just kind of tell us a little bit more about your work um, being president of AMSA and also what allowed you uh, to be able to support and make change, you know, within the LGBT community through that role? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I, I did uh, a, a start broad, broad and get narrow. So I did a, a lot of work last year centered around health disparities. Uh, in fact, uh, AMSO will be uh, having its uh, health disparity scholars program kick off here in the fall. We're bringing it back. It hasn't been happening for a while, but one focus that will be emphasizing is the disparities that we see in the LGBTQIA uh, community. Um, yes. Specifically for me, uh, I worked very closely with our gender and sexuality team on providing awareness to our members. So that is the very first thing that we always try to do. Uh, and AMSA that I always try to do is provide awareness to individuals and then equip them to be able to speak out on whatever they want to. As you all know, and if you don't know, I'll share it with you. There are a number of states uh, in the country, actually 31 last time I checked, uh, that do not have provisions that uh, mandate uh, LGBTQIA individuals uh, being covered uh, by health insurance or receiving health insurance. So right. those places, uh, if, if somebody doesn't want to insure someone for their sexuality, uh, then uh, they can choose not to, which is quite uh, a shame. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So yeah. uh, that I spent some time uh, providing awareness there in that realm and then uh, equipping individuals to be able to reach out to their legislators. I'm, I'm sure you all have picked up on a theme uh from what I'm saying already, and I always talk about reaching out to legislators because I really believe in the power of the people and using your voice. So I can't emphasize enough. Mm-hmm. If you see something is wrong, you have the power to change it and get people behind you to change that. I, so that is one thing that I really tried to do across the board in AMSA, whether it was LGBTQIA disparities or disparities that we see based on uh, racial, uh, on people's backgrounds and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So it's very important to understand that a lot of the work that uh, many uh, people in AMSA doing a lot of work that many people in medicine who are involved in this kind of healthcare uh, advocacy pushes to really encourage others to join them and then to use their voices to make a change by uh, reaching out to legislators and then kind of the most low hang, hanging fruit that we have is by voting. And I'm sure you all. Uh, yeah, that's super important. <laughs> exactly. By voting, putting people in office who we know are going to make the change that we want to see. Exactly. And that's really timely considering that um, primaries are pretty much here um, for a lot of the states. Some states have already had their primaries, but, you know, other states are now um, getting that as well. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned voting because that's also very important. Um, But I think that it's, uh, you know, kind of funny that you just mentioned uh, the health insurance coverage, you know, for LGBT people in that issue, because my next question is actually geared towards some recent events that have occurred. Um, these, this, these, this question I have um, right now is geared towards both of you. Um, but essentially, I wanted to call attention to the recent events that occurred within like the legal realm um, within the LGBT community. So one being uh, the Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia case, where the Supreme Court ruled in favor of LGBT protections in employed spaces on the basis of Title VII um, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which states that one cannot be hired or fired on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, or religion. Um, So basically they determined that sexual orientation was also applicable to Title VII because you have to judge one's sex first in order to judge their sexual orientation, right? So they're both kind of inexplicitly like tied. Um, And now the second event, which was a more so of a clear loss, um, had to deal with the Department of Health and Human Services yeah. no longer recognizing gender identity um, as an avenue for sexual dis- uh, sex discrimination in healthcare. And so that was eliminating protections for the transgender community. So kind of based on the details of these events, um, how do both of you think that these policies are going to affect the health of these populations moving forward? I, I, I just want to say first that uh, uh, we'll go with the good first. That was very moving to me, and I was very happy to hear about the uh, mandates that have been put in place uh, in the workplace uh, for uh, people in the LGBTQA community. Uh, so I, I have to say that I was very, very happy about that. When it comes to the... Uh, to the rule that was put out by the Trump administration in regards pretty much a discrimination against LGBTQ people. It was horrible because first of all, it happened on June 12th. And I'm sure many of you may know, but if you don't, June 12th, four years ago, uh, was when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened in Orlando. So as you know, I'm now based in Daytona Beach, Florida, and I have really great friends in Orlando. Orlando is under an hour away from me, so fairly close to Orlando. So when I saw that on the anniversary of such a horrible event, not just for the LGBTQIA community, but just for human beings in general, that Mm -hmm. really just, I mean, 
uh, not to get too political, but the Trump administration has done many things to leave a bad taste in many of our mouths, but this was almost like oh, yeah. spit on. So um, I, I was very sad to see that. And so when you asked, what does this mean for our communities when it comes to uh, the mandates uh, for us not being discriminated against uh, when it comes to being in the workplace, that's great. That means that, you know, if there is anything uh, done against us basis, on the basis of basis of our sexual orientation, then we have a law backing us. But when it comes to not being able to potentially receive health care after, you know, and I just shared with you about the, the, the tidbit about the insurance companies, 31 states, you know, don't have to to include people of this ba- of the LGBTQIA background if they don't want to. Now exactly. with this on top of that, rolling back uh, something that we that was put in place by the Obama administration as a part of the Affordable Care Act is just horrible. And there we already know that uh, kind of similarly to the African American communities and other communities of color that the suicide rates and uh, disparities that we see in uh, LGBTQ individuals is higher than that of other populations. So what this right. does is it opens up the doors for individuals to be discriminated against and to not receive the health care that we deserve. And so I always say when one of us loses, all of us lose. This is not good at all. And I'll let Dr. Gonzalez speak more because I'm sure he has a lot of great insight on this. Yes. I would agree with uh, Dr. Cochran on these issues. Uh, winning at the Supreme Court protections and employment um, was a good win for the LGBTQ community. Um, before the Supreme Court case uh, came down, um, a person could still get fired because of their sexual orientation or gender identity in about 30-ish states. So this gives those protections to those uh, LGBT Americans living in those states. The funny thing is, is that most people who are not in this space already thought that uh, LGBT Americans had these rights. Uh, right. So I'm not sure if this is going to make that much of a difference. And some of my research shows that it's not just um, marriage equality. It's not just uh, employment-based uh, discrimination protections, but LGBT Americans need comprehensive legal protections. Exactly. Um, in housing and in education and public accommodations um, and, and fi- finance sectors. Um, that's, I think that's what it will take to improve um, health outcomes for LGBT Americans. Yeah, th- that's a good point that you made. Um, could you actually go a little bit more into, um, like you know maybe other areas that are lacking of LGBT, um, you know, concern and focus within a legal realm? So like you know we all know about marriage equality. We kind of know, I think, about health protections, but like you mentioned, like housing and other issues, like people aren't really, I think, that much aware of it. So is there any um other things you can say focusing on those areas? Um, yeah, and that, yeah, I would, I and. These are areas that we call the social determinants of health, the places Mm -hmm. where we live, work, and play that affect our health outcomes. And one example is in education. We know that children, LGBT children, youth, and adolescents get bullied um, at very young ages, uh, even into um, into, uh, college um, and and, uh, maybe even in medical school. But if we had questions in education, then we would be able to um, allow LGBT educators to um, uh, to protect them in those schools, but also protect students in those schools. And this mm-hmm. is this is related to what we what is called the Equality Act. Um, it was passed by the House of Representatives, um, I believe, uh, early last year. 
And right now it doesn't have a chance in the, in the Senate, um, but this would extend um, non-discrimination protections in education and housing and in public accommodation. So there's a bill mm-hmm. on the table, um, but we just need the lawmakers to um, uh, get this passed uh, in order to protect LGBT Americans. Right. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, and just going into this next question, um, also for both of you, um, you guys are both. I have just one more comment, and I'm sorry for interrupting. This has to do with something else that Dr. Cochran mentioned um, about uh, the, uh, the the Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Health and Human Services um, taking away some protections for um, LGBT Americans in healthcare, um, and this is. Uh, this is happening under the guise of religious freedom. Providers can um, deny patients or and, or health services if it violates their conscience, their closely held beliefs, and their religious mm-hmm. freedom. And I think that this is going to lead to um, some religious exemptions uh, for providers, for facilities um, to um, deny LGBTQIA um, patients and and their health services. And one example is is, um, mental health providers. And we see this here in Tennessee, where mental health providers um, in the state of Tennessee have religious freedom protections and they can deny patients um, based off of their sexual orientation or gender identity. You know, wow. if, you're, if, if you're a psychiatrist and you don't believe or if you don't, you're not an, affir- an LGBT affirming provider, you probably should not be treating LGBT patients. People, but, yeah. People, right. And but but I worry about the LGBT person in rural Tennessee who may have a mental health uh, emergency and there may only be one psychiatrist in, uh, in, in that county. And so that that provider should provide the best care they can to save that person. Right. And yeah, yeah, actually, that's very interesting. And so actually moving forward with what you're talking about. So are there any legal proceedings that are being done so far to like require um, physicians to, you know, treat all, not really have any preferences, especially if they're in an area that's like, you know, kind of um, not necessarily in the middle of nowhere, but just kind of like not really there's only like one doctor for like that particular area and like they have a duty, you know, to protect everyone. Like, is, is there any kind of legal, um, you know, proceedings that are going on in that arena? Or is it just kind of like, you know, there's just, if you have religious freedom, you can do what you want and everybody else has to kind of figure out their own um, method of, of healthcare. How, you know. You know, I'll let Dr. Cochran add to this, but I, right now I think it's just maybe a dozen states that, guarantee uh, non-discrimination protections in healthcare. And Mm -hmm. so if those providers are receiving federal or state dollars, um, they probably cannot, um, in in those handful of states, they probably cannot deny uh, LGBT patients or care, but there's this, this is another area that is just not gaining enough traction right now, from my opinion, from what I see. Right. Um, Yeah. And and, and I'll just add, yeah, I'll just add that Dr. Gonzalez was pretty much hit it perfectly on the head with his numbers. It's, you know, uh, uh, 13 states and, and, and then plus D.C. And I only know about D.C. because I was physically there this last year. But uh, he, he's, he's exactly right. And it, it's, it's quite unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I will add, though, that the, uh, the medical schools are getting better at training medical students in yeah. LGBT health. You know, mm-hmm. now there are finally electives uh, in LGBT health. Um, 
But I think there's still a lot to go because the average medical student may get one hour um, on LGBT health across their four years. Um, right. They decide not to take an elective on health disparities or LGBT health, but it's usually just someone coming in, um, presenting some data and statistics on LGBTQ health uh, for one hour, and then that's it. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, um, yeah, there's definitely still a long way to go, go clearly. So, yeah, um, but at least um, it seems like based on what you've said that the issue is being a little bit more aware, I think, but you know, this is America. So there's still a lot more that we have to cover when it comes to um, LGBT community and everything um, regarding that. And so I just have another question for you both. Um, you guys are both, you know, within the LGBT community, both um, people of color who are within the LGBT community. And so what kind of differences have you seen just between people who are just LGBT, non um, POC and versus someone who's POC LGBT, um, like the, the struggles that they've had to face within health, just in general. So I, I will say that, you know, and, and, and this is, uh, I, I had the opportunity to speak to another uh, group of people specifically about this topic. And uh, before I get into your exact question, I have to say, I feel like maybe even the bigger issue is that uh, more people of color, unfortunately, have lower socioeconomic statuses, putting them in a situation where they might not have uh, equal access to health care. And right. so um, I have seen people who are people of color and people who are not of color who unfortunately don't have the financial stability just be treated you know, badly and, and primarily because they, they you know, they're, they're looked at a certain way and they, and people view them a certain way. And, you know, exactly. and so uh, I, I will say that, you know, of course we have our people out there that are uh, racist and then adding, you know, uh, your sexual orientation, which is different from the majority into it, just makes those people even more uh, mean. But one thing I will say is that I think we, we have to do the best that we can to really make healthcare accessible to every single person and not have it necessarily only attached to um, someone's uh, job. Because as you can see, you can have someone who is working and then when they lose their job, they can also lose their health care because health that, insurance. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, but obviously, you know, I have seen people of color uh, treated uh, terribly, whether it's whether they're uh, LGBTQ or not, but specifically in the LGBTQ realm, where I've really seen it more than anywhere else is when it comes to transgender uh, indiv individuals. Unfortunately, right. transgender individuals of color, they, I, I must say, they, they, they tend to be discriminated against uh, more than any other group that I have seen um, in clinic. I've only interacted with a few patients uh, that were transgender people of color just due to the fact that, you know, there is not that uh, many of them and, you know, and, and that many right. places. Uh, but I think one thing that Dr. Gonzalez said that, that might be leading to a change in the way that people in terms of healthcare are being discriminated against is the fact that um, medical students now are being offered electives and, and then in some schools even being mandated to take, you know, uh, training when it comes to working with people who are uh, transgender and in the uh, LGBTQIA community. So I think that, and I believe that, uh, that will 
make a change. You know, you have to think about it also when people are not trained to work with people and then, you know, they're under the pressure to perform. I'm not justifying how physicians have acted towards people because it's not right. But yeah. we also do the part that we can to train our young doctors to make sure that they do know how to work with these individuals. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. I do think that training is a huge factor into how someone just practices um in the future and like how they, you know, behave moving forward with all the population. So yes, thank you, Dr. Cochran. And Dr. Gonzalez, f- feel free to comment as well um, on the question. Yeah, I would um, echo some of the, uh, the concerns about trans people of color. Um, we have an epidemic right now on killings against trans women of uh, specifically African-American and Black trans women um, are, hundreds of them are dying a year and being killed to some very brutal hate crimes. And so this is a major right. Um I, well, let's see. I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have lunch with Barney Frank last year. Um, he was uh, the first uh, out LGBT member of Congress. And oh, I, wow. think he said, I think he said it best. Uh, LGBT Americans are gaining so many um, rights um, towards equality and equity, but we're leaving behind um, our black and brown Americans in many ways when um, states are denying uh, Medicaid expansion and uh, places where there are a lot of Hispanic, Latinx, African-American people. Uh, right. So I, I worry a lot that, you know, that, that, it's it's really um, just the black and brown Americans who um, are being left behind in our country. And it's very disheartening. Um, very true. I think you guys have made it clear that um, people of color who are LGBT are facing much more um, hardships, maybe compared to those who are not people of color. And I think that just goes into the fact that um, people of color have a lot more disparities and just like... Um, social factors, economic factors that they have to overcome in addition to being LGBT. And so um, thank you kind of like for clarifying those differences that are faced, um, you know, between the two groups and kind of, you know, um, maybe things that we're kind of overlooking when it comes to treating individuals like that or, you know, or interacting with individuals like that. I will also add that, you know, racism is not absent in the LGBT community. Um, Yeah. You know, racism is still an issue within the LGBT community. Um, segregation is an issue that um, I'm very concerned about. Um, the example, and it, it's still Pride Month, um, but many cities will have a Pride event, and then there may be a Black Pride. And, you know, for right. me, it, I approach this as something that may, and, and Dr. Cochran can speak, uh, may, may uh, you know, speak on this too, but this is something that... I feel like it's it's it to me, and uh, as a Hispanic person, it feels a little bit um, disheartening, and, and that, that there's not a unified um, LGBT community. Right. Mm-hmm. I I can to, to remain as uh, uh, political politically correct as I can, I will just say that <laughs> you don't have to though, you know, you can, you can tip the pot just a little bit, but it's okay. It's- <laughs> <laughs> uh, correct. Uh, unfortunately, uh, from, since I can remember, you know, sometimes in the LGBTQ community, we, 
we we can pick on one another and you know it, it it's quite sad you know we i always believe you know when we we unite no matter who i'm talking about when you unite with people uh you can make it a lot further and i think that sometimes you know in the lgbtqia community uh racism can be pervasive and as dr gonzalez right. said there are black pride events and sometimes those black pride events happen because unfortunately people of color don't feel included into the uh, community. And I think that exactly. the thing that people uh, point to is, you know, very, for a very long time, you know, when we did have gay characters in movies and gay characters and TV shows, it was always our cisgendered white male. And so the rest of yep. us were like, right. well, us, what, what about, I don't have anybody to identify with. And it's kind of like, you know, when you think of medicine, you don't have as many uh, African-Americans in the field. So, you know, as a young gay individual, you go, wait a second, what about me? And, and, right. and I say, I, I have to say, I can't, I can't, I cannot be on here without stating this. Many of you probably are aware, you know, in the African-American community, you know, homophobia is definitely a real thing. So super you know, pervasive, right? Yes, so our own community was not even, you know, for very long, you know, I'm glad it's changing now, but for so long, wasn't even accepting us. So imagine being a double minority and then you're a minority in your own group. It's <laughs> exactly. <a> <laughs> Right. No, those are great points. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, you guys making that kind of clarification with uh, the, the fact that racism doesn't just go away because you're like in a different uh, group because you're still black at the end of the day, you still have to face that plus, you know, what other um, group you identify with. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, and so just kind of moving into I'm a question regarding just clinical care. Um, so of course, our audience is composed of people who are mainly people who want to become doctors, maybe people who are training to be doctors, or maybe even just doctors in general. And so how do, you know, we as physicians or physicians in training offer good care um, for the LGBT community, especially those who identify um, as people of color, and also kind of giving consideration to some issues like, you know, trans men needing to receive OBGYN care, um, unmarried queer couples, and, you know, the end of life decision making that they have to make. So that kind of um, those kinds of issues that have to be faced, how do we provide that care um, as people who want to become doctors? I think my, my best response is that do what is best for your patients and, and be have humility. Um, I think that, you know, by treating everyone fairly and being as, as kind as you can and also making sure that you maintain your uh, uh patient physician relationship, but making sure that you are there for all your patients, treating all your patients equally can really make a big difference. You know, patients can see when you truly are invested in them and patients can see when you truly care about the situation that they're going through. So, right. uh, you know, you probably have heard the little, it's the little things that count the most sometimes. And I believe when it comes to clinical care, obviously we need to do our best to, you know, make sure that we are doing everything uh, to a T when it comes to clinical medicine but that uh, interprofessional uh, or that that interpersonal uh, touch is also very, very important. And I believe for me, I've seen docs who, you know, approach all of the patients the same way and very good doctors approach all their patients the same way. And they have such great outcomes with their patients because number one, their patients know that the doctor respects them. And I think that can really carry you so far when you show your patients that you respect them. Right, right. Thank you. Of course. 
um, Dr. Gonzalez, feel free as well um, to answer this question. Yeah. Did you did you want me to repeat or because I know that was no, a no. lot. <laughs> okay, no, this is great. Um, so I I think it's you know it's getting better, but we still need to just be aware and be mindful of every patient's sexual orientation and gender identity, and that information needs to be collected in intake forms and. Um, in early um, communications with um, with the with the uh, patient, why does that mm-hmm. matter? Because it, we need to know, um, you know, what are some of the circumstances um, that may be going on. So if someone right. shows up in your clinic with depression or anxiety, and it's a young LGBT person, you know, it's, uh, it's maybe there's something going on at school or at home that could be affecting um, their mental health. When we come right. up. With- plans we need to be patient uh, physicians should be mindful um that uh that lgbt americans are di- are different than their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts they're less very likely true to, yeah they're less likely to have a partner or a spouse and it's important to use language that is also gender neutral so asking, right. asking a gay man if his wife can pick up his prescription medication is um, is kind of a microaggression. And right. <laughs> I hate having to out myself every time I'm asked about my wife. Uh, exactly. No, I don't have a wife. I have a spouse and it's, and he, and he's a man. Um, right. It's important to be uh, mindful of, of every patient's sexual orientation, gender identity, and it will, you know, make the, uh, physician patient interaction better um it it will lead to better satisfaction and care and probably more likely for a patient to um, complete their treatment and return if needed right right thank you so much for that and so um you know just not last but not least but um you guys are still gonna be able to share your final thoughts i'm um, at the end of the episode but kind of just for those um you know who are becoming doctors or interested in treating you know um, these communities, LGBT communities, what are just kind of some pearls of wisdom you have um, when doing either a patient encounter or maybe just doing research um, in LGBT uh, communities? What's kind of like a word of wisdom you have um, for the audience? Yeah, so I, I, I think that the first thing, and, and, and I'm talking about, you know, whether it's in the ED, whether it's in the, on the floors in the inpatient setting, whether you're in an outpatient office, uh, I think, you know, when it, and especially as a medical student, because as a medical student, sometimes uh, you get to be the first one to go in and talk to the patient, maybe you in an intern or you in a, a resident. So you actually get to kind of start off the uh, physician-patient relationships. So um, right. if, you are, if you are unsure of how to address someone, it is totally okay to ask someone, what pronouns do you use? Nobody, I have never seen, I've done it. I mean, I'm in the community and I do it because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't always know either. Uh, right. And that way you know that you're, so when you ask that, that tells the person, okay, it, at the, this person wants to make sure that they are addressing me the right way. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that if you are nervous on, you know, I, I have, I've had a peer who said, I didn't, I didn't know how to address the person. I'm like, you can ask like, what pronouns uh, do you yeah. go by? AMSA in fact uh, has had a couple of sessions on this, but I also want to um, highlight my med school, Wright State uh, University School of Medicine. You know, we uh, had a number of sessions with uh, transgender patients and patients in the community. And I'll tell you what, all of them said, 
hey, we don't mind you asking what pronouns do uh, do we go by? You know, we're not expecting you to walk in and, you know, already have the answer. So right. I think that's natural. Like you, it's totally okay to ask. It's kind of like, you know, when you first learn how to do a, uh, a, a patient interview and when it comes to the sexual history, you know, sometimes that can be the thing where you're like, oh, I don't want to ask this. I don't want to ask this. But yeah. <laughs> right, right. Thank you. I agree with Dr. Cochran. It's okay to, you know, ask for help and to ask a person and and to be vulnerable and say, look, I don't know what pansexual is. Can you tell me what that, what that means to you? Right. It's okay to ask those hard questions. Um, You know, and I think if, if someone wants to be an ally and, and the easiest and most minimalist thing that they can do is to demonstrate their allyship. And I always That's recommend true. physicians to just put a little rainbow sticker on their name tag, maybe a, a, a rainbow flag on their uh, right. layer, but just showing um, the LGBT patient patient in front of you that you care and you're an ally. It's, right. It's, a big difference because every time an LGBT patient enters a clinic or um, some facility, they're looking for cues on whether they will be in a safe environment or not. Right. Difference if they see a rainbow sticker, a rainbow flag versus a Bible in a (laughs) it makes a big difference. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And I've yeah, and it's I've seen I've seen that, of course, walking to hospitals, I've seen, you know, the the little rainbow uh, ID tag. And I think, yeah, that's a it's a really subtle way to just kind of say that, you know, I stand with you, I'm here, and like, you can feel safe. So yeah, I completely agree. And so just before um, we close off, do you guys have any last thoughts that you want to share with our audience? I'm starting first with Dr. Gonzalez. And of course, I'm Dr. Cochran, you can follow with your own thoughts. Yeah. So, um, you know, with my experience with training uh, medical students in LGBT health research, you know, I I always advise um, medical students to just take a chance on uh, new opportunities. And if you're unfamiliar with LGBT health, um, seek out those and you're interested, seek out those resources, seek out those faculty um, who are ready and willing to um, train the next generation of physicians because, you know, I don't have a lot of hope for the older doctors in our, in our country, but I have <laughs> a lot of hope uh, with the young, uh, young physicians and the rising generation of physicians. Um, right. That, I, I am so, uh, I think that's the one thing in, in this world, in this crazy world that we live in that I have hope in because um, they're passionate, they care, and they're motivated to make a difference, not just right. for LGBT Americans, but other marginalized and vulnerable populations. So I have a lot of hope and, uh, and, and, and just, I would just encourage them to, uh, to not stop and stay woke. Thank you for that. <laughs> Yeah, that that was excellent. And and I'll just add to that, you know, we are in a uh, different time right now, a trying time, uh, many would say, and I agree. But before this and after this, the, what I'm about to say remains, we have to treat others the way that we want to be treated. I, I truly believe that if we all woke up in the morning and did just that, we would see so many things changed so right. quickly. So those of us in the positions that we're in uh, going to be future healthcare providers, we can really make a difference by leading by example. 
uh, be the change, you know, that you want to see. And we have a lot of, you know, things that need to be changed. And kind of like Dr. Gonzalez said, I don't have a lot of hope for maybe some of the older folks, not just in healthcare, but some of the older folks in a lot of different fields, you know, just in general. Yeah. (laughs) They just don't want to change, but you know, it's, it's not okay, but it's also a thing where we can do better. And I, and I believe that we can. So with that being said, I really hope that, you know, not just when it comes to LGBTQIA people, of course, I, I, I want to make sure that, you know, those of you who, who uh, want to get involved and use your voice to help uh, this community, please do so. But, you know, we really have to make sure that we do help all marginalized individuals, because as I said earlier, when one of us loses, we all lose, but on the right. flip side, when we all, when one of us wins, we all win. So I really hope that, you know, this time can really bring us all together because I, I really don't like seeing the, the divide on either side, no matter what political party you uh, fall in line with and no matter what your thoughts are, we have a lot more in common than we do not have in common. So mm-hmm. I hope that uh, we can use this opportunity that uh, has been given to us, uh, although how no matter how tough it is right now for all of us, it's a time for us to come together. So I really thank you all, SNMA, you guys are amazing. I really have enjoyed <laughs> not only working with you guys on the convention, but obviously we had a very strong SNMA chapter at Wright State. Two of the presidents, I think, in the last five years have come from Wright State. So obviously I'm yeah, I'm an EVA and then uh, and then Christy, who uh, was president, I believe, 2016, 2017. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I know that uh, I, I know you guys are great. And so please keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. But yeah, thank you guys for your responses. Um, well, those were all the questions I had for you both today. But I really want to commend you guys for showing up and just showing out with the explicit details of what advocacy and clinical care looks like um, for the LGBT community and just what we can do as individuals moving forward to help contribute to the cause. But you know, before we close, though, how can our audience reach you both with any possible questions they may have? Are you guys like on social media? You know? How can our audience, um, you know, get to uh, reach out to you? So, so the running joke is still the is still Isaiah loves to give out his phone number because it's and I don't and I'm going to give you my phone number because it's the easiest way for me to to interact with folks better than right. email back to you. So, um, my my phone number is three three zero eight one four two six nine four. That is three three zero. Eight one four two six nine four. I I prefer that. And if I get questions about this topic, I I want to talk to you. I don't want to I don't want to go through email. I want to talk to you. So right to me. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I I may not get my phone number, but your listeners can <laughs> they can follow me on Twitter, uh, Gail B. Gonzalez, or reach me by email at gilbert.gonzalez at vanderbilt.edu. Thank you guys so much for that. (laughs) Okay, well, to the audience, we hope you all learned something new and can utilize this information moving forward in your own personal lives and careers. Now let's wrap up the show. Be sure to follow SNMA on social media to stay up to date on upcoming events like Blackout Day, July 7th. Do not go out. Do not spend any money on July 7th because we got economic power as people of color. They want us to be out here purchasing we have an opportunity to say no the most important things is the rights for social justice for equality for the understanding of our communities and representing 
and communicating that. And don't forget to apply to the Regional Alliance Program, an introduction to leadership at SNMA on the regional level. These applications are due August 16th, so be sure to apply. And the call for faces of the Frontline Campaign, a student-led campaign built to inspire discourse around the current crisis using arts. And last but not least, the SNMA Kaiser Permanente Fellowship is actually due tonight, this evening, so be sure to apply to that too. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to our first episode. We appreciate you, our listeners, and we hope that you will continue to come on, join us for our chats, for our laughs, and for the betterment of our Black community. Don't forget to check out Student National Medical Association at snma.org. Take care, y'all.